0: Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers Podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love.
1: We're
0: getting a little Nerdy today with my guest, Dr. Tom Dykstra. Tom is an entomologist who has focused his research efforts over the past 25 years on insect bioelectromagnetics. Had to slow myself down there a second. (laughs) That's a hard word to say. Bioelectromagnetics is, in essence, how insects experience the world through electromagnetic fields. There is a charged energy bouncing around us at all times. Think static electricity or lightning strikes, stuff like that. Living cells also produce electromagnetic fields, including our own bodies and the bodies of plants. It is this current of energy that insects use to sense what's going on with plants. As you'll hear from Dr. Dykstra, this is the way insects are sort of smelling the air to determine if they should descend on a crop. Think thrips coming in waves to your lilies or lisianthus in the summer. I had tried reading up on this field of study in a couple books, but found it to be pretty over my head. At the end of the day, I don't think that it's all that important for us growers to really understand the details of insect bioelectromagnetics, if you can even say that word. (laughs) But what Dr. Dykstra discusses with me in this interview is how all this sciencey stuff boils down to a simple tool to use in the field, a refractometer to measure bricks. BRICS, for those of you that aren't familiar with it already, is a reading of the sugar content in a solution, in this case, plant sap. Sugar in a plant is directly linked to photosynthesis. A healthy plant photosynthesizes more efficiently and thus has higher amounts of sugar in its cells. Plants that are out of balance or struggling have low sugar, What's fascinating is how the BRICS rating of a plant's leaves can pretty much tell you exactly what pests are going to come knocking. There's this magical BRICS level in plant leaves that makes them inedible to all pests. You'll want to listen through this entire episode carefully to find out what that is. One takeaway from this conversation that I want to highlight right from the start is that applying pesticides is counterproductive. To ridding a crop of pests. You heard me. Pesticides lead to more pests, even organic ones. Pesticides and herbicides and any application meant to kill anything instead of increasing life harm the plethora of diverse life on the leaves of plants. That life is absolutely critical to a plant's ability to photosynthesize effectively. When we spray and kill all that microbiology on a plant's leaves, the bricks levels in that plant plummets. Low bricks in a plant is the equivalent of the Batman beacon in the sky for nearby pests. Low bricks screams come eat me. Our job then, as regenerative farmers, is to focus on increasing bricks through increasing life and through enhancing our farm ecosystems rather than killing the pests. Like everything, it all stems from the soil. I hope you find this conversation with Dr. Dykstra fascinating. If, at the end, you're eager to get your own refractometer and start measuring bricks in your crops, I've put a link in the show notes to the unit I use at my farm, and you'll also need a garlic press to help squeeze the sap out of leaves. I would also encourage you to listen to another podcast interview that Dr. Dykstra did several years back with John Kempf of the Regenerative Agricultural Podcast. I've linked to that in the show notes as well. If you're curious about what other farmers are getting for their BRICS readings, consider joining the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network, where we're starting a community database. Find it at regenerativeflowerfarmersnetwork.org. A vibrant community hub for the ever-curious flower farmer, this network helps make connections, start conversations, and serves as a repository for a curated collection of articles and studies. Membership in the network also goes to support the making of more podcast episodes here on No-Till Flowers. Alrighty, let's go hear from Dr. Tom Dykstra. So let's do a real-life scenario. I've got, I've got two real-life scenarios to, to unpack for you with your knowledge. Um, one of the things, a, a major pest for flower farmers in particular, are Japanese beetles. Um, mm-hmm. Big, big, big one. And so frequently... People buy pheromone traps for Japanese beetles as a way to try to combat them. Uh, based on your expert knowledge, there, is this a good idea or a bad idea? And I've always heard it's a bad idea, but I would love to hear what the uh, expert smellorama <laughs> insect guy has to say about this. <laughs>
1: uh.
2: Well, you're not going to like my answer because my answer is it's both a good idea and a bad idea. Oh, okay, I love that that answer
0: because it's all about context. So tell us about the context. (laughs) It is about context. Yeah. Uh,
2: So do they work? Yes. Uh, Mm. So we understand the sex pheromone of Papilia japonica, which is the Japanese beetle. We can attract them in traps. And so, yes, those traps will work Um, as far as them as that being a little bit of a problem, generally speaking, when you place a lot of pheromone traps in an area, that usually brings them in. Right. And so therefore, yeah. they're going it's going to be a little more uh, important for them uh, because now they're in the area and they, they might start munching uh, on the, the flowers. So okay. that, that is a potential problem. It's always a problem uh, with the pheromone traps is because some of them are very efficient mm-hmm. in uh, doing what they do, and uh, which is also part of the problem. So some people have decided to put pheromone traps just away from mm. their, let's say, mm. flowers, so that they can still attract them without getting them too close. That's one of the ways that they work it out. But the other way, uh, in the context that I was referring to, and this goes back to what you had mentioned earlier, and this has to do with bricks.
0: Yeah, and I would the, love the to br- talk about that. <laughs>
2: the bricks of the plant. Uh, so I'm getting into a, a a heavy subject now, a little bit different than uh the insectal faction. so let me get a drink
0: oh yeah please <sighs> wet that whistle so you can talk all about bricks yes. and how insects interact with bricks and how we as farmers can um put down the pesticide sprays and instead focus on bricks do tell
2: yes all insects uh, i have not noticed any exceptions yet uh so i have hit myself with possible many exceptions But each time I've been able to uh, outsmart myself. Hmm. And to this point, as I'm doing this in 2022, I am not aware of any exceptions in regards to insects attacking um, high bricks plants. So, bricks, uh, low bricks plants are attacked um, almost all the time by insects, and high bricks plants are not. So, what the insects are doing is they are going after unhealthy plants. The plants that they are avoiding are healthy because they cannot digest them. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for an unhealthy plant that is already broken down in some fashion or another that is digestible is a better word for it. And because of that, they will move in and they will start eating or di- and then digesting the part of the plant that they're interested in, whether it be the roots for the corn rootworm, whether it be a leaf. For the Japanese beetle, could be the stem. Uh, There are many leaf insects that attack the leaf, but they will uh, zoom in on the weak part of the plant and they will start eating it. Uh, A high bricks plant and a low bricks plant. For those who are not familiar with it, bricks has to do with a measure of sugar, and because of that, it has been used uh, quite quite readily. Bricks measurements have been done uh, and still used uh, in the citrus industry uh, down here in Florida. They're used heavily in the grape industry uh, because they will not usually pick a grape until it's at 24 bricks uh, when they're making uh, wine. And so uh, bricks has been known for for decades. It's been known for a long, long time. So the bricks that I'm referring to to is a leaf bricks. Mm -hmm. And this leaf bricks is to determine how much sugar is in the leaf. And that is a direct relationship to photosynthesis because every, all plants wish to photosynthesize. This is their purpose in life, is to take the energy from the sun and turn it into sh- to sugar in order to make, um, um, uh, to, to fuel all of the things that the plant needs to do. And so because of this, uh, it is a measurable phenomenon. We can easily crush uh, a leaf, crush a leaf and uh, or multiple leaves. It's usually multiple leaves because one is not enough. And then we get some sap uh, from that, and we can test the bricks levels, and in so doing, we determine that the plant is at a low bricks or at a high bricks, based upon the number that we get. The magic number, which has been around the internet, is 12. This has been talked about a lot, so if you do a search on the internet, you will have no shortage of websites that will talk about the magic number of 12 bricks. And essentially, what they will say in a nutshell: anything above 12 bricks, the insects will not attack; anything below. 12 bricks the insects will attack and this is mostly true almost okay i mean easily 95 (laughs) to 99 percent of the time it's true but there are nuances uh, that i have been able to determine that uh this this does break down a little bit and that there are some details that are being lost for example when you're told that anything above 12 bricks doesn't get attacked and everything below does you have 1 million species of insects. So to sit there and tell someone that all 1 million species of insects are now going to possibly attack your plant <laughs> because you're, you're at 11.9 is not honest. That's just okay. a, not an honest thing to do. Okay. And so, yes, the, the, the number 12 is important, but uh, there are certain insects that will chew on plants that are slightly above 12 bricks. They just won't stay long. Uh, Mm -hmm. but they'll take a few bites, realize that this is not working out and move on. Other insects won't even touch a plant Mm. that is above 12. They will not even be attracted to it at all. So the fact that the Japanese beetle is coming in is a signal that the flowers in this particular case are not at optimal health. Okay. That's all that that says. That may not be, it may not be that they're absolutely sickly and, and in terrible shape. That just means that they're vulnerable Specifically to a particular pest, and in this case, it's the Japanese beetle that we're referring to. So there are four groups of insects that I break down uh, in regards to this bricks level, and the first group uh, that, that I differentiate are the is what I call the grasshopper group, and the grasshopper group includes the crickets, the katydids, and uh, similar types of insects. And these insects are attacking some of the highest bricks plants, uh, usually be um, and because of that once the bricks gets relatively high usually between 10 to 12 bricks they lose interest in eating a plant Uh, i mentioned 10 to 12 i'm giving a range right now because there are different insects out there and they have different preferences based upon the plant. So I'm not gonna sit there and say that, you know, it's going to be 11.652 is the BRICS number uh, (laughs) for the Japanese beetle or anything specific like that. I'm giving a range and I'm doing that on purpose. And is that once the plant gets to 10, sometimes 11, and pretty much by 12, these insects start losing interest in eating the plant, those from the grasshopper group. The next group down, are going to be generally all of the rest of the chewers. And that's because Mm -hmm. I've not been able to differentiate between them yet. All of the other chewing insects, not part of the grasshopper group include the beetles, Mm -hmm. such as the Japanese beetle. They include the Lepidoptera, the butterflies and the moss, which are the caterpillars eating your leaves. Uh, They include uh, many other types of insects that were actually chewing the leaf. They will lose interest in a plant when uh, the bricks is between nine to 11. Okay. So the, the number has come down slightly That's because they cannot tolerate uh, the higher bricks plants when I say higher bricks I'm now doing differentiating between everything 12 and below okay but they're, they are no longer able to do that So the grasshoppers are more tolerant the chewing insects are, are a little bit worse and by the time we move to the next level which are the suckers, those insects that uh, stake, take their proboscis their yep. beak Aphids.
0: Uh, that's our number one aphids, sucker around yeah. here. <laughs> and
2: they uh, they will start uh, to stick their their beak directly into a plant and start uh, sucking the life out of it uh, many of the sucker sucking insects are going to lose interest in a plant between seven to nine okay uh, bricks so we've now gone down a fair amount because there's really a strong difference between the chewers and the suckers and then the last group, uh, and this includes many of the bugs, uh, many of the bugs that you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about the brown marmorated stink bug. Uh, I would include thrips uh, and some of the others okay. that are probably attacking flowers as well. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, those are what you would find that if, when it gets up to seven, they're losing interest by eight, they're losing even more interest by the time you get to nine, uh, they're just not eating anymore uh, and they're moving on to another plant. Okay. And then we have the last group which also includes suckers, but I call them the aphid group hmm. uh, because these are looking at the lowest grade plants. And these aphids include uh, not only the aphids themselves, but those who are related to the aphids, include scales. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the scale insects are also sucking insects and, and I would include them uh, in that group as well, uh as well that's gonna be at a much, much lower group and they're gonna be about six to eight bricks. Okay. So by the time the bricks gets to six, they start to lose interest in the plant. By the time it gets to seven, a whole bunch more are falling off or leaving. And by the time you get to eight, I have not noticed any hmm. uh, from that aphid group ever attacking a, a plant oh, uh, wow. that is at eight, eight or above. Okay. And so six, six to eight is the range at which point you start to lose those insects. Now everything below six is is extremely vulnerable Hmm. at that point it can be attacked by a number of things now usually you will not find uh the chewers uh eating a plant uh from at three to four bricks generally speaking they do not do that it's usually at such a low low quality level that they're they're not interested in going after that anymore and so Uh, i do mention in many of my presentations and i'll just mention it now if you go back to the 1800s when we were moving to the west um we had huge problems with insects attacking our crops and if you talk to anyone from the 1800s and i'm not sure if anyone can can do that right now (laughs) uh, they would tell you that the biggest problem they have is locusts okay Uh, the locusts are grasshoppers and they're obviously Mm -hmm. in that higher group um they are they do attack the plants readily uh, they attack plants that are just low enough uh, to be attacked, and therefore, um, uh, now a hundred plus years later, especially in the 1900s, we started losing sight of the locusts. The
1: mm-hmm. locusts,
2: I think most of our the listeners will know, are not a problem anymore. Yeah. Most most of the time, our grasshoppers or they're not attacking uh, plants on mass like they used to do in the 1800s. And that's because the plants have dropped. Their health has dropped to the point where it's no longer attractive to many of these insects. Oh, our
0: plants are too unhealthy to to get locust, basically. That is
2: correct. Wow.
0: Oh, that's that's kind of mind bending.
2: I know. When I'm doing consulting, many times people will mention that they have a particular insect attack in the crop and suggestions can be made in order to improve it. And they say, well, you know thanks a lot tom you know you got rid of the insect in question but now i'm dealing with this one and i say oh good <laughs> and, and it, you know i said if they don't hang up the phone on me uh they're like what are you talking right. about right and then i said you just moved up to a different level okay. you got rid of the sucking insects you're now dealing uh with a higher level insect you're going in the right direction but you're not there yet okay and so we need to continue to health up the plant in order to get to the point where the insects—I'm talking about all insects—are no longer attracted to a mm-hmm. plant at all. Mm-hmm. So going back to, so I needed to give you a little bit more background in order to discuss the Japanese beetle. Yeah. The Japanese beetle is one of the higher-level insects. Okay. Okay. And so it's going to—it's going to be attacking a plant, and um, so when you have a plant and they are going after, oftentimes the—the—the the, uh, the flower part. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to be—that's going to be if the—if the, if the flower is looking pretty good to you, it's probably relatively healthy and therefore attractive to the Japanese beetle, but you're not going to have some of the other insects. The aphids will come in, they'll start attacking the leaf at a much lower level. And at that point, most flower farmers, I think, if you've Mm -hmm. been doing it for a while, can notice the difference between a good flower and a bad flower. Mm -hmm. And if you go out and you check, you will see that there are different insects. You you never have, and I've seen many extension publications from many universities, and they could easily have 12 to 15 insects that attack a given crop. Mm-hmm. You know, 12 to 15 insects attacking soybean, 12 to mm-hmm. 15 attacking corn. But you never, ever, ever have all 12 to 15 insects attacking a plant at the same time. At the same never.
0: time, Okay. Okay. And, and that so has to do that, with the BRICS level and, and their ability yes, to digest it different that, different that levels. That does. Okay. They,
2: are indi- they are indicator species, not just some, but all of the insects okay. are indicator species. So if you're not spraying pesticides, and specifically the insecticides, uh, to kill the insects, you don't have those indicators anymore. Mm. And it becomes a little bit more difficult for you to determine uh what the plant is doing so i can get in a good idea of what the bricks level is without actually testing bricks oh. i just taking a look at, at the insects at that are there. attacking it okay that gives me okay. an idea where we are but i can also test the leaf as well and get a pretty good idea especially if pesticides are being sprayed because if someone tells me that they were spraying pesticide a mm-hmm. and then they came back and they sprayed it again and then the insects came back and they sprayed it again and the insects came back and they sprayed it again and I would you know, try to tell them the reason why this is happening is because the plant is unhealthy and you're not helping matters. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you keep throwing the pesticide down, you, you kill the insect off, but the plant is still unhealthy. It's still advertising itself as unhealthy right. and the insects are going to come right back. Right. So you kill the ones that were here, but you're just going to replace them with all new ones, possibly of the same species, mm-hmm. unless you're going in the wrong direction. And if you are continuing to apply pesticides, and I'm talking about not just some, but all of them. Mm -hmm. If you're putting down insecticides Mm -hmm. and fungicides and herbicides and nematicides, uh, Mm -hmm. even that. I mean, if you're putting all four of them down, you're doing a really good job of taking out a lot of the microbes in the soil. Your plant will be unhealthy. uh, And because of that, the plant, uh, as it drops in health, will now start attracting different insects as it moves down, let's call it the ladder, Mm -hmm. uh, the bricks ladder, Uh, and this is going to happen. So yes, uh, this has happened in many crops. We have gotten to the point where the crops have degraded to the point where they have now become attractive to insects that for all practical purposes didn't exist. Wow. Uh, A few decades ago.
0: That's crazy to think of how it just it speaks to the fact that locusts don't want to attack our crops as to just how far down a hole we've all gotten. Um, I do see this this cycle of spray, 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 you know, like in our industry, there's there's definitely like the audience for this podcast is a very regenerative minded podcast audience. And so they're not they're not tending to spray, but there is in the floral industry and flower growing like a huge cycle of just spray 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 over and over again particularly for something like Japanese beetles or cucumber beetles because in flower world in in my business we're not allowed to have any blemishes on the flower because that's it's a visual aesthetic crop and so one bug bite means that you know flower is essentially useless it's not the same as growing corn where you can shell it off the cob and and still use it so we have a very low tolerance for blemishes in the flower industry Right. and yet at the same time people spray and spray and spray to avoid those blemishes and it doesn't really actually help and i see the the health of their plants deteriorating so i like i like thinking and i know that you you have lots to say on it about how we can increase photosynthesis which therefore increases bricks which therefore means we don't have to spray once we get to that magic 12 or 14 or whatever have um tell me tell me how we should photosynthesize better (laughs) you know how how can we how can we get our plants doing a better job so that they will no longer need to be sprayed uh
2: in the most general sense possible uh we're looking to put on natural products okay Uh, natural products include uh you know any any of the rocks that are out there there are lots Mm -hmm. of soft rock phosphates hard rock phosphates there's basaltic rock paramagnetic rock a lot of those rocks are, are generally beneficial Uh, To almost all plants. Uh, Many of the natural um, sprays that can be put on a plant uh, are also beneficial as well. Um, They may not all be beneficial to the Mm -hmm. same plant, but generally speaking, you're not really hurting a plant. So if you do have any question, you you can do a brick study Mm -hmm. uh, from one day to the next. Mm -hmm. And that is to take a baseline rating of your bricks level. And so if you find out that your plants are coming in at uh, 6.3, and then you put out a particular amendment mm-hmm. i don't know what the amendment is just whatever amendment that mm-hmm. you, you think might be able to help and then you go out and you measure the plants again they're at 7.9 okay well i i could tell you right now those plants liked what you put what down we did. okay you, you have the answer to your question right there you did not have to uh, uh um send the information out to anybody else you did it in-house you did the study in-house and the same thing goes with and i could tell you in advance right now if you do it with pesticides the bricks goes down, down. almost all okay. the time okay so it's an issue if you want to go ahead and test it please do yeah uh, don't 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 have to listen to me if so, you don't want to do that uh, do, but is there... uh, that's generally how things go
0: okay i've been testing bricks at my farm and um so i have a couple additional questions on that is there so if i spray like molasses and increase the uh-huh. sugar content like immediately on a, on i'm talking about a foliar spray on a plant is that a legitimate way to try to combat if i've seen a pest come in and settle down a little bit and i want to increase the bricks is that a, a real way of doing it or is that just like a temporary like jolt and it doesn't actually help in the long run
2: all right here i go again there's a yes and no answer to what you just asked <laughs> and it really depends upon factors so okay. no you cannot put sugar on a plant and raise the bricks uh, because there is no direct relationship okay between the sugar applied and the sugar inside the plant all the sugar inside the plant is made by the plant itself that's that's photosynthesis so any amount of sugar that's in there is produced by the plant the reason why you put down and why it's so benefit it's so beneficial to put down molasses you brought it up so let's Mm -hmm. talk about that yeah molasses is a wonderful product there's a lot of sugar in it and it feeds the microbes Mm -hmm. so you want to put down molasses if you do so you put it into the soil it will feed the microbes and the microbes are going to love it and their numbers their populations are going to increase drastically due to this um, uh, product that you put down molasses uh, blackstrap molasses Mm -hmm. if it's if it's coming in at 70 bricks, I mean, you're gonna have yeah. a really great substance uh, on your hands right there. So it has that great benefit. Now, as far as a foliar feeding is concerned, yes. There are certain micronutrients that are found in molasses that you would not find in a straight sugar solution. Okay. Those micronutrients, the micronutrients are, are likely, if they are sprayed on the leaf and it's almost impossible not to spray the leaf, <laughs> uh, can be absorbed directly through the leaf. Micronutrients have that ability to do so. Not all nutrients are commonly absorbed through the leaf. Right, but right. for those that can be absorbed through the leaf, they usually fall in that micronutrient category of which blackstrap molasses is usually, uh, uh, has, has a high amount of, of nutrients in it. So when these micronutrients, if, they are foliar-fed, and, the, and they are absorbed through the leaf, which is entirely possible. And you have a jump in bricks. Uh, this can often be attributed to the micronutrients, okay. which are now in the plant, therefore a, a lot, uh, increasing its health, and therefore, by extension, increasing the photosynthesis. Okay. So it wouldn't be related to the sugar itself, it would be related to the micronutrients. If you wanted to wait for the full effect of the molasses, you'll have to wait a little bit longer because foliar feeding is relatively quick. Mm -hmm. Whereas feeding of the microbes, it's it's hard to do within a few hours and it's hard to do within within about 24 hours. You're probably gonna need a few more days. But after a few days, when the population goes up, you can go out there and remeasure the bricks. And at that point, you'll have a good idea about the effect that molasses had upon the flowers uh, based upon the full effect now. Okay. The, the, the guess that some of it is being foliar-fed, and then the uh, assumption that some of it is being fed through the roots uh, via the microbes, which you've now uh, healthed up. Okay. Because every time you health up the microbes, uh, the plant is going to benefit.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, and
2: that, that's, what, that's why we don't spray. That's why okay. most people listening don't spray is because we realize that we're killing the microbes. Yeah. And that this is putting us behind the eight ball right so, to speak.
0: so we always want to I mean we, it, here at no-till flowers we all always want to increase microbiology in our farms and we've done a lot of content on that so that's that's not a hard sell I, I think I was looking for like oh my gosh here come the cucumber beetles um, to eat all my dahlias they've just you know flown in from Florida uh, and uh, what can I is, is there instead of picking up that insecticide or pesticide or whatever side uh, what what's a natural thing that maybe would have immediate uh, impact on the bricks that would raise it to dissuade them? Or there isn't something that's that quick, I guess, basically. No, no,
2: no, no. I I know what you're asking right now. It's the the question that I get asked a lot. Is there a silver (laughs) bullet? Right. (laughs) Is there the magic bean? Is there the magic product? And I don't know of an organization out there, and now that I'm involved with AEA, and if you take a look at the list of AEA products, wow, there's more than one product. We, we can coat seeds, we mm-hmm. can coat the plant, mm-hmm. we've got stuff for the soil. So you've got a lot of different products. And so therefore that's evidence right there, as many other uh, uh, corporations will tell you, is that there is no silver bullet mm-hmm. and that oftentimes you need to assess uh, to find out which natural product and i'm going to emphasize that which yeah. natural product you'd like to put down on your plant in order to benefit it because mm-hmm. sometimes you need to throw everything at it you know mm-hmm. the entire kitchen sink at the okay. plant because it's in trouble and other times uh, you do not you can be a little okay. bit more selective about what needs to be uh done so generally speaking i'll just mention um, i'll get a little bit more specific but i'll still going be talking <laughs> generally and that is when you do get some of those micronutrients in you can harden up the plant. Hmm. So if you have adequate amounts of calcium, adequate amounts of silica, adequate amounts of iron, you can harden up the plant, which will make it harder to eat. Okay. It's not only harder to eat for the chewers, but it's harder to puncture hmm. uh, if you uh, are a sap sucking insect mm-hmm. and none of us are listening to this. So but <laughs> because of that, It's the sap sucking insects. You don't want them to puncture it. You don't want the chewers to go at it. And there are ways of hardening up the plant. So a very soft plant is going to be much more vulnerable. And that's usually because it's missing. uh, And I just mentioned three of the big ones, Mm -hmm. calcium, Mm -hmm. silica, and iron are three of the big ones, but there could be other micronutrients too, which also add to the increased uh, hardiness
1: of a plant.
0: Okay, that makes sense. a question for you about bricks, testing in particular, uh, should as flower growers, as flower farmers, should we be testing petals when we test bricks or is the leaf the best still uh, plant part to be testing here?
2: Uh, the leaf is the best one to test. But can you test uh, the petals? Absolutely. OK, sure. There there are individuals out there. And if there are some listeners who would like to do so, absolutely, you can. Uh, you can go ahead and test. The reason why we test leaves is because it's predictable and it doesn't doesn't fluctuate as much. Okay. Uh, the, the sepals, the petals, uh, they're all in a in a in a vast growing mm-hmm. state at that point, and there mm-hmm. are a lot of changes that are growing on in their particular leaves. Okay, I'm talking about the sepals yeah, and the petals, yeah. okay. as well as the pistil and the stamen. There's right. so much going on there that there's a lot of variability that can be difficult to do. However. For hardcore uh, flower farmers, if you are testing the sepals, the petals, the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the entire flower, if mm-hmm. you want to, you can actually develop a very good uh, baseline hmm. based upon your plants, and you'll be able to tell where they're at because they're going to show some slightly different uh, properties than they would the leaves. We stick with the leaves because you, many times we're talking to farmers, we want something relatively... Um, um, Uh, Consistent.
1: Mm. I don't Mm want to
2: be telling them, like, yeah, go ahead and test the root for this plant, the leaf for this plant, the stem for this plant, the flower for this plant, the fruiting structure for this plant. (laughs) You know, if you're just doing the leaves, which is where photosynthesis happens, that's Uh, the point of photosynthesis. That's That's
0: where it is. Yeah. Okay. Then
2: all you need to do is test the leaf, and that will give you an idea. So if you have a a low bricks leaf Mm -hmm. on your flower and Mm -hmm. the thing comes back at 4.7, you can be assured that your flower is not going to be optimally healthy.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. just the
2: way it is. You, right. just, you just can't make a healthy, healthy flower out of that because the flower is pulling all of its energy from the leaf. Okay. The, yep. the fruit is pulling all of its energy from the leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stem, uh, the root, they're, they're getting all of their energy right. from okay. the leaf. They're pulling up nutrients from the soil, but all of that energy Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the sugar energy, and then the, the formation of the ATP. Mm-hmm. This is all being done in the leaf, in the chloroplast, in that region. And that's the region that I focus in on to give you an idea of if the plant is doing well or if the plant is not doing well. Okay. However, yes, you, you can have a discussion about breaking the plant into different yeah, parts. Different parts. It, it, it gets complicated <laughs> right. uh, and that's not something that I prefer to do. But yes, yeah. I have tested other parts of the plant okay. before. Uh, because I'm looking for specific types of information. Yeah.
0: So no, it makes it totally makes sense when you're thinking about photosynthesis that that's really the leaf is where the action is at. Um, so to 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 make this a very actionable conversation for listeners, when they test bricks, then they should look for a leaf that's like kind of in the middle of the plant, not really new growth, not really old growth, just middle middle growth.
2: <laughs> yeah, generally speaking, I just go for the middle. Um, okay. Uh, when I'm when I'm testing bricks, I just want to know what the plant is doing at its best. I try to go out there, um, if it's in the field, it's maybe in the greenhouse, if we're talking about flowers, uh, but I'll go out in the field during the middle of the day when the okay. sun is high. any uh, Anytime between one to five is, per, is a good good time because I just wanna know what the plant is doing at maximal photosynthesis. That's okay. what I wanna know. I don't wanna okay. know at its least I don't want to do, know what it's doing in the morning. I don't want to know what it's doing in the in uh, in the in the evening when the sun goes down. I just want to know what it's maximally doing. So if it's maximally coming in at 14.8, I'm thinking, okay, this plant's doing okay. Mm. Sure, it may drop uh, a little bit because sugar has moved around the plant at different times of the day. Uh, it shouldn't change too much. Okay. Uh, but generally speaking, if I'm getting a maximum reading at 3.6, from the leaf uh this this <laughs> plants in trouble barely i alive. mean there's, it, yeah. there's just no no way that yeah. this plant is going to do well
0: yeah uh so a couple follow-up questions first of all if a plant is at like 3.6 you just you just rip it out and start over (laughs) because is there any way to bring that back i mean yeah i mean if it's a perennial i understand you got time to work on it but if it's an annual crop i mean that doesn't sound like there's a whole lot helping there but um
2: Uh, no there's not a whole lot but there uh there are ways to uh increase the health of it and yes to go out there and to start spraying as many nutrients on it as possible Mm. Uh, let's 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 use molasses as a great example so matter of fact it's one of the best okay uh so uh, if you have you should be spraying sugar all the time especially Mm. if you are spraying pesticides But even if you're not spraying pesticides, you need to be putting sugar out Mm. because sadly, most of the plants that are out there are low bricks. Mm. And the reason why is because they don't have enough microbial activity. So the reason why you put out sugar is to increase the microbial activity in the soil and your plants are almost always gonna benefit from that. Now, if you're spraying the pesticides out there and killing the same microbes that you're now increasing, then you're taking one step forward, one step back. You're not really going anywhere. It's a
0: dance, yeah.
2: Yeah, it is a little bit of a dance, and so it's going to be difficult to go forward. But right. by putting sugar out there, this is a great way to get the microbial population up. Okay. And uh, if there are certain uh, nutrients that you feel good about, there are certain uh, rock dusts mm-hmm. uh, that usually plants can respond to relatively quickly within a week.
0: Oh, uh, really? Sometimes, oh, I some, always think sometimes... of rock dust as like this long term. I'll put it down now, and then like next year, my crops are going to be able to really access it. Is yeah, that not well, true? rock
2: dust when you. Well, when the rock dust go down, they usually last for about five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you've got, if you get a lot of rain like we do in Florida, we get about 60 inches of rain. Uh, generally speaking, they might last three years and you'll have to reapply again. Okay. Rock dust uh, can be picked up the plant and, and you can see results hmm. within a week. Oh, wow. But th- that's slow. Uh, some of the micronutrients that I discussed, if they're mm-hmm. being foliar fed, uh, within hours.
0: Yeah. And yeah.
2: sometimes within an hour or two. Yeah. So that's really rapid. And that's once it gets inside the plant, the plant will circulate that around okay. and uh, and health up the plant as fast as it can. Right. And you can get a measurable result within 24 hours. The rock okay. dust, uh, it's hard to do within 24 right. hours. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. uh, the effects from it are still relatively quick. Uh, okay. Within a week, certainly possible, easily by two or three weeks. But you'll see the new growth coming up. And the new growth, when you put out rock dust on a plant that it's kind of suffering, mm-hmm. uh, and then the new growth comes up, you will see the leaf will be bigger, hmm. considerably bigger than the leaves that are there. Mm-hmm. And it will look like a gigantic leaf. And you're like, <laughs> wow, look at the size of this leaf. And that's your first indication that, that the rock works. dust yeah. is, is starting to work on your on your plants. And this is the way it is with a lot of the okay. nutrients. There are many other nutrients that are out there. AEA has a, is a, uh, a a lot of, of products okay. uh, in order to health up a plant, uh, and uh, the uh, the rock dust is something which is near and dear to my heart because I've been involved in paramagnetic rock dust for mm. uh, a long time, and so the the effects are uh, are, are are noted relatively quickly. Like I said, I've 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 got house plants here in the laboratory uh, where I can notice a change within a week.
0: Okay, so wait, I want to I want to ask about the paramagnetic stuff, because I didn't even think about it from that perspective. You're the guy that would know things like this. So can we talk about the, you know, the the magnetism of different minerals? And um, gosh, I want to pick your brain about biodynamic farming, too, but I might stop myself from going down that rabbit hole. But yeah, let's talk about, you know, how energy flows from from rocks.
2: Uh, The the paramagnetic rock dust, um, which is what Phil Callahan had originally looked at and I've had a chance to take a look at, has a beneficial effect. And what we believe is going on and we we believe seeing that we do not have the scientific studies in order to support with uh, significant figures going Mm -hmm. down to the fourth, fourth significant figure. Right now, we've got a lot of anecdotal evidence. And from what I have seen and from what I have noticed, is that uh, the rock dust is able to focus um, atmospheric energy, and mm. specifically, I'm talking about the Schumann waves, mm-hmm. uh, which are out there uh, at usually about 7.83 hertz. Uh, out there, very measurable in the environment. Uh, for those listeners who are not familiar with this, has to do with lightning strikes, mm. uh, because we get about 2,000 lightning strikes, I think, a minute, and so mm. this creates a resonant cavity around the Earth. Uh, of these Schumann waves. And I, based upon what I have seen, I believe that some of these uh, uh, nat- natural fields, these mm-hmm. natural electromagnetic waves are being focused when we use paramagnetic oh. uh, rock dust. And so when they are placed in close proximity to a plant, uh, we can have an effect, even if we cover it. So we can cover it in plastic or to make yeah. sure that none of the nutrients will actually make their way into the, the plant But simply by being in close proximity to it, we can get a beneficial effect is my understanding of it is that so many of these natural waves are simply being uh, amplified, I think would be a good word, uh, a good electromagnetic word to use, and that the plants are responding to it. So when Phil Callahan was doing the research, they had mentioned some of the round towers in Ireland as being Mm -hmm. important sources uh, because they were filled with paramagnetic uh, rock, if not uh, uh, levels, or uh, of uh, alternating levels of paramagnetic and diamagnetic rock. And so they, uh, some of the farmers around the area, uh, and one of the ones he was quoted in his book when he was asking why the guy just took, you know, hundreds of sheep on a barge across this water in order to feed around the paramagnetic round tower, the round tower, and he said, "Well, you know, everybody in Ireland knows that this, <laughs> this is the best grass uh, in yeah. in the region." So, so I mean, the fact that they know that uh, means that there's uh, there definitely seems to be something going on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I have had a, had the opportunity to take a look at a lot of paramagnetic rock dust, uh, basalt uh, being one of them, which is mm-hmm. has a volcanic source. The beneficial effects are real. Noting the difference, though, is difficult because if you just place it on the plant, you're going to get two beneficial effects, in my opinion. One is electromagnetic, which mm-hmm. I just discussed. And the other one is the actual mm-hmm. mineral, okay. because the plant will actually break down the paramagnetic rock dust and will be able to extract many of the minerals. So a lot of these rock dusts that I talk about out there, even if they're not paramagnetic, can still have a beneficial effect upon plants especially if the plants are relatively acidic, uh, mm-hmm. like 6.4. Mm-hmm. If they've got a 6.4 reading, that's generally good enough for a good, slow release uh, to get some of these micronutrients out uh, mm-hmm. and into the plant. And uh, therefore, they ha- they have that beneficial effect. But the electromagnetic beneficial effect has not been worked out uh, to my satisfaction. Uh, but the evidence right there is strong enough uh, that I use it. Uh, on my plants. And I would, I would certainly have no misgivings about telling someone else uh, to do the same.
0: So does that, as a scientist, I can tell you're a, you're a detail oriented guy who loves to prove a hypothesis and and do the research. Does it, is this like a leap of faith for you then? Or you just, you just don't think you've cracked it the way you didn't crack how insects smell for, you know, a decade or more or whatever. Yes. Okay, and he, that's all yeah. he's got to say, folks. <laughs>
1: that's it.
2: That's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I just... felt I felt uncomfortable for over a decade because yeah. every time I said something, I said insects are not smelling the way we think they are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And
2: immediately, someone would turn around. Well, what do you think is going on <laughs> right. then? And at this point, you're like, uh, I'm not exactly sure. No. And then, of course, they walk away. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I I realized that it wasn't so much a leap of faith. It was like I know they're doing this. I yeah. just don't know how, how yeah. they're doing this. And now that I understand much better how they're doing it, I still think I've got more to learn, but right. we've got a really good grasp on it. Okay. I feel the same way about the paramagnetic rock. I've seen okay. the effects of it. Uh, I've seen the isolation effects where you're isolating the, uh, the paramagnetic rock mm-hmm. from the actual plant so it can't actually start, um, uh, you know, um, dissolving it, mm-hmm. I, I think would be the mm-hmm. word uh, to mm-hmm. use. Um, but uh, absolutely I would just suggest doing that. I do it myself. Uh, so obviously I'm a believer in the sense that I'm comfortable with using it on on my own crops. So okay. Okay. whether it be the plants in my office or whether it be uh, anything that I'm raising at my house, okay. um, I'm, I'm more than happy to put the stuff down and reap the rewards uh, from it.
0: Do you just broadcast it? Or are you just uh, side dressing it or do you work it into the soil in terms of for the paramagnet, you know, to get the, you know, the electric connection there or is it uh do you need to put it in the soil
2: no uh i do both okay uh so if i'm planting something and i just planted uh just a couple days ago i planted a citrus uh, Hmm. tree so i dug out the hole and i mixed uh, in paramagnetic rock dust as as, as well as some other nutrients in there and then popped the citrus in there and then covered it up and then put another layer over the top. So if I'm dealing with that, that's what I'll do if I'm putting a new plant. But generally speaking, if I'm either lazy or (laughs) uh, if I'm dealing uh, with my seven kids, because I don't have a lot of time on my hands wow. right
1: now, yeah. <laughs> then,
2: then there's gonna be a broadcast treatment. And yeah, you're gonna look at me as if I'm Johnny Appleseed, <laughs> just... uh, reaching in to throwing the stuff out around yeah. the plants right. and uh, just, just allowing it to percolate in. Okay. It doesn't take long to percolate in okay. because of the amount of rain that we have in Florida. Oh, if you do that in uh, New Mexico, Arizona, mm. Texas, a lot of that stuff will just kind of sit on the surface and it'll, okay. it'll take a long time to work in, but yeah. we don't, we don't have that problem here in Florida. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's just good to hear in general, because, um, most of us, uh, that listen to this podcast don't till our soil. So it's always hard when somebody comes on and says, add this, and then you have to till it in. And it's like, oh, womp, womp. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> So um, so let me ask you another question about bricks, because you said this earlier, and then I, I was like, oh, I want to ask you that. Um, so I've been testing bricks at my farm, and then I've noticed that if I test bricks early in the morning, around like 9 a.m. or something, it's really low on a crop that then huh? if I test at 2 p.m., it gets, you know, then I'll have like a 10 at 2 p.m., but in at, at 9 a.m., it's like 3 or something. It mm-hmm you said it shouldn't change too much. So I guess it's like, it was something wrong with my plant. If it is changing, I just assumed that meant that the sugars were moving, you know, down to the roots at nighttime. And then it's like taking its time, building up with photosynthesis during the day. Um, so that's the first part of the question. And then the second part of the question is if there happens to be a swarm of thrips flying overhead in the morning when the plants, you know, are down at three something or whatever, you know, whatever the low bricks. Um, and then oh, they decide. I you're going with this one. Did they yeah. descend and then they're like, whoo. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just worried about that fluctuation. If I work hard to get my plants to have a fairly high bricks in the afternoon, but then they don't in the mornings. Are they more susceptible in the morning?
1: <laughs> uh,
2: they, they would be more susceptible in the morning, yeah, because they are lower bricks. Uh, d- generally speaking, if the plant is really healthy. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a good 14 bricks plant, the fluctuation should not be that strong. Okay. And so uh, if you've got a really healthy plant, a good healthy variation would be two. So I'd expect it to go okay. down to 12 easily, and it would uh, possibly go up to 16. But that would be a really healthy plant. If the plant is not that healthy, the fluctuations will be more severe okay and you are kind of noticing that right now but you're telling me that you're at a maximum of 10
1: mm-hmm.
2: so i would be looking for a, uh, a 14 bricks or above okay for a really good plant so we've got a plant right now which is doing okay there jenny yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna pat you on the back as much as i can because <laughs> i don't want you to cut me off right now i
0: won't i won't but i know it needs to good improve <laughs> job. good thank job thank you thank you tom thank but, you but because
2: the plant and you but you are right about the fact that the sugar does go down into the roots at night all plants do that However, um, when it drops that much, um, the plant doesn't want to sacrifice. No plant wants to throw that much sugar down into the roots okay. at night. Okay. And, and then exude them out of the roots unless they're really, really, really desperate for particular minerals, and they need to get certain microbes there. Okay. And they're about to die because this is a dangerous thing for them to do. A plant is more than comfortable to put about low amounts of sugar into the soil to feed the microbes that should be there. And that's why you wouldn't find the large fluctuations that okay. we're talking about right now. So it sounds to me like the plant is is short and it is, it's at a 10 bricks right now. Mm -hmm. So because of that, it's throwing possibly a a little more sugar down there than it's comfortable doing. It's keeping some of it. It always keeps some. So you said you're at a three bricks right now. That's like barely at a minimum level. It's just to keep the plant stole I don't know alive if it was really three, doing.
0: by the way. It might have been more like six, but I'm just, you know, that, that there's that's, a pretty, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's,
2: yeah. But yeah, uh, there's going to be a fluctuation. The plant will want to hold on to as much sugar as it can, and it will release what it can afford to release. Mm-hmm. So if you have a 14-bricks plant, it's pretty easy for a lot of sugar to be dumped into the soil because the plant can afford to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, But if you've got something which is suffering a little bit, uh, they're probably gonna need a little bit of help. And this is where the molasses may come in. Even if you don't have molasses, some of the other sugars, because if you're dealing with a low bricks plant, they may need some help. Mm -hmm. So by putting some sugar down, you can help the plant by keeping some of its sugar inside and helping mm. to raise it, this is not something that needs to be done because obviously you can uh, break uh, the bank mm-hmm. uh, by mm-hmm. putting sugar in all the time, but sometimes they need a jolt. Okay. And if by putting sugar down, uh, let's just say once a week to help them out to, to jumpstart them mm-hmm. so that they can start getting to a higher bricks is sometimes necessary. So as long as you're not continuing to kill the microbes at the same time that you're trying to raise them, you can turn things around. And then the plant, will become what we call self-sustaining. Right. It will be able to take care of itself. Right. And it won't need all of the inputs, which means raising crops becomes incredibly cheap and therefore your profits increase. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of necessarily increasing yield, it's about decreasing your inputs. inputs.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's always the that's the the golden egg I'm always pursuing there. But let me let me ask you this then as a follow-up question to that I have worked, so I went no-till at my farm and started focusing on soil health um, four seasons ago now, and this, and which is the catalyst for this podcast, um, and so I worked really, really hard after tilling for over a decade. My soil was really dead, and I worked very hard to increase microbial populations in the soil through um, Jadam and Korean natural farming, and then also just bringing in lots of um Different things to you know uh, humates and molasses and stuff like that, and I now know that my soil is cranking with biology because I can see it. I can literally see the physical change in the soil, which is incredibly gratifying and and encouraging. But I am starting to wonder sometimes, and this is to connect to the question I just had for you: is sometimes if the biology is cranking so hard, I know that biology eats first and plants eat second, and I worry that maybe I'm not feeding the biology enough and they maybe that's why there's such a sugar sink in my plants is just because there's so, there's like the biology wants more sugar um, and the plants aren't getting quite as much as they needed out of the soil do you think there's a possibility if I'm seeing a really low bricks in the morning that the biology is asking too much you know is too hungry and if I feed the biology more sugar then it'll sort of bring a better balance or is that a whack-a-mole <laughs> uh, hypothesis uh, I got going on
2: there's actually yeah there is there's something to what you just said okay. uh, and there's a very easy way for you to measure that and that would be bricks okay is to uh, uh, take a look like if you've been analyzing bricks throughout an entire season and you handed me the sheet of paper and said these are the bricks readings uh, for last season and this is what I'm getting right now uh, you know are you seeing an increase? Because if you are, then obviously things have improved. Mm-hmm. It's also taking a look at the amendments that you're putting in. You've made a, a ton of amendments, it sounds like what you're doing. And if your, uh, your plants are healthy, it will be reflected mm-hmm. in the BRICS readings. So this all goes back to, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? And I'm telling you that there is a way to test that. You simply ask the plant are you liking the environment that you're in right now because obviously if you're getting 14 15 16 bricks or above Mm -hmm. the plant is very much liking uh the Mm -hmm. environment that it's in and everything about it is going to be looking good you're going to have big thick leaves Mm -hmm. not thin ones they're going to be thick they're usually going to be a little bit uh thicker too You'll see a nice uh, gloss on them. Those mm. would be the wax layer. Uh, mm-hmm. There'll be a much thicker wax layer if it's healthier. Uh, the growth uh, will be; it will not only be a little bit taller, uh, but you'll see a lot more uh, uh, growth uh, from the leaves itself. If they are efficient at what they are doing, uh, they won't need to grow that tall. Mm. Uh, so they'll grow tall, but they'll get to the point where they're comfortable. And so this is all a little bit of a trade-off because we mm. all know that plants all reach a point and then stop yeah and that means they've they have reached optimal so citrus trees for example here in florida they don't get to be 150 feet tall there are no citrus trees in florida that are 150 feet tall they all get to be generally uh, for a full-grown citrus tree mm-hmm. which takes 30 35 years uh you know they'll get to be easily 30 40 uh feet tall easily yeah but it takes a while in order to do that and then they stop okay and so this is the way it is with all plants the flowers for example you don't you don't you're not sitting in a greenhouse with flowers you you start throwing nutrition at them and then it becomes like a jack and a beanstalk where the flowers start jumping out of the greenhouse and they start breaking through the windows and things like that that doesn't happen they they, they health up the stem will be thicker too okay you can measure the stem the stem will be thicker the flower will look thicker. You're going to have more vibrant colors Hmm. because the higher the bricks gets, the more the plant secondary metabolites increase. Mm -hmm. Once the plant secondary metabolites increase, you are going to get an increased odor, Hmm. an increased um, color, uh, and increased resistance to insects Okay, uh, because many of the secondary plant metabolites are uh going to be repelling a, a lot of insects okay and so uh these secondary plant metabolites are important and when they're there uh they're doing their job uh that they're supposed to be doing so obviously for flowers you want scent mm-hmm. you want a strong scent yeah a good strongly scented flower will be high bricks
1: Interesting. you're
2: not going to get a strongly scented flower hmm. at 3.6 bricks yeah this is not going to happen it has to be at least six yeah Otherwise, you're not going to have any smell uh, to your plant
0: at all. <laughs> I'm, I so. have this. Uh, this is the, this is a, a little rabbit hole that may have no no bearing on you or what you know. But in the floral industry, over the years, like for cut flowers, for flowers you would have in a bouquet. Um, the industry moved to a very global market, and they literally bred scent out of flowers because they claimed that scent in flowers made for a more perishable flower, a more easily bruised flower, a flower that would die faster in the vase. And so a lot of plant breeding focused on getting rid of scent. But what you've just said is kind of counter to that in that if, if it has a lot of scent, that means it's a healthier, stronger, you know, will have, you know, a waxier layer, etc etc. Um, were they just lying to us this whole time? <laughs> Maybe you don't know. You probably don't know the real answer. But I, I just know. I find oh, it fascinating. You,
2: you know what I'm going to respond. My comment's going to be no comment. No comment. That, that's that's going to be my comment. Yes.
0: That's fair. That's a fair comment. <laughs> <laughs> conversation I had I like to um, really dial into a few really specific things during our conversation. So, thrips. Let's just talk about thrips. What you know, maybe like you already said that anything over seven or eight, they're gonna lose interest in that. This thrips is a, a horrible pest in the cut flower industry because they come in, they settle in. They're these tiny little stupid things that we can't really see until they turn your flowers like muddy looking, basically. <laughs> so they're they're flying over. it. This is what I. I have always known about thrips is they are flying on the wind um, and then for some reason they decide to descend. Is there anything that you know in your wheelhouse of vast knowledge that would help us flower farmers uh, combat this concept that they're going to descend? Is there anything we can do in our farms and our fields that's going to distract them or repel them or whatever to to even land at all?
2: (laughs) Yeah, you will notice, every farmer notices this. Yeah. Uh, you will notice that there is never an even distribution of insects in the field. So anytime you talk to a farmer, even sometimes when they'll say, oh, yeah, they're all over the place. They're on all mm. my, I got a thousand acres of corn. They're attacking everything. But when push comes to shove and you really get down to, to the brass knuckles, you will find that, yeah, there are some regions uh, that get attacked more than others. Mm. And it'll be the same thing with the uh, the cut flower industry. Mm-hmm. Is that they uh, the thrips are are above, and they are looking down, and I don't mean just looking, but smelling too, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, right. t- to determine what flower they want to descend on, and so they will descend on the flowers that they want to, and they will avoid the flowers that they cannot digest, and so there it would be a matter of looking at what you have done. For example, if you notice that one particular region. In your field or in the greenhouse is not being attacked overtly mm-hmm. uh, i would that would draw my attention immediately uh, to that region in order to determine what is different about that particular uh, part because sometimes you have to sit down and talk uh, with the individual and to determine what may be going on for example they might say something like i'm noticing that i'm uh i'm either being attacked more on the ends mm. or i'm not being attacked more on the ends and at that point you know, you kind of have to start asking questions about mm-hmm. what, when, when you're doing and, and putting on the applications, is someone getting lazy at the end? You know, mm. they're spraying along and suddenly they switch it off because they change direction. Or uh, when you get to the end, if you're on in a field situation, is there a windrow? Mm. Because if the wind is blowing, it's the application is not going to hit the stuff on the end, right. uh, which, which can be good or bad. Right. Uh, because if it's a pesticide, it could be good then the healthiest stuff was gonna be on the end. end, Uh, But it depends upon many different factors. And I'm sorry that I keep answering. It it's really okay. depends upon a lot of different factors, but you are talking to a scientist. <laughs> I was
0: gonna say, so every scientist- You jumped into this, this <laughs> no, is your every fault. No, every scientist I've interviewed has said, it depends, and I'm really yeah. used to that. I'm used to that response, but my job is to try to ask the questions at least. So I, I appreciate that response by every means. So, um, and then with aphids, just as to, to pinpoint another bad uh, pest, particularly right now in the springtime for us flower farmers, we're getting tons of aphid pressure um, that come in on some of our um, uh, how the things that are grown in houses like ranunculus and anemones and so forth. Um, I feel like I'm always battling aphids, even when I have healthy plants. And I will do a better job of testing the bricks on those plants. But is there... Is there anything else you p- you'd like to say about aphids in particular? Because <laughs> they're such a pain in the butt, frankly, yeah, for all of us. Un-
2: un- unfortunately, uh, I had done a several-month study hmm. on aphids okay. with, with AEA. Okay. It has not been re- been released yet, hmm. uh, but we went through uh, to determine exactly uh, what the aphids were smelling. So hmm. it was a chemoreceptive study to the, to the type that I was talking about before. So I'm going to ask you some general questions. Okay. Great. And you're going to answer them, Jenny, to the best of your ability. I Here will. we go. Okay. Are you putting down any nitrogenous fertilizers?
0: No, I'm actually, well, fish emulsion. I don't know if that's nitrogenous. Fish emulsion. Is that, that nitrogenous? Is. Okay.
2: Okay. Yep. Uh, are you putting down any ammonia?
0: Okay. I use all natural uh, uh, foliar feeds, so no ammonia okay. in them. Uh,
2: there may be a little bit too much of uh, the fish feed, mm. uh, the fish uh, emulsion, the fish uh, hydrolysate, and uh, that may be a potential problem. Okay. So if that is the case, many of the aphids will be attracted to a plant that is stressed if mm-hmm. too much of some particular amendments hmm. are put down and they will smell it from a distance and that will attract them. And once that is corrected, um, and then uh, the aphids will uh, either leave the plant or they will die. Uh, so almost instantaneously is
0: that a matter of then i should switch my nitrogen s- source because it's specifically they smell fish emulsion or uh um... no no no
2: no they it's not the fish emulsion that okay. they're smell it's just the nitrogenous
0: yep. acid because yeah. the crops like ranunculus they need a lot of nitrogen so if you don't feed them then they don't grow so it's kind of like wow it's such a fine balance i guess
2: let me let me put it this way you uh there's there's a difference between needing nitrogen and excess nitrogen. Mm,
0: okay.
2: Because mm-hmm. there there are uh, w- there are uh, many different parts of the plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have nitrogen in the air. We have nitrites. We have nitrates. We have ammonium. Mm-hmm. We have amino acids. We have polypeptides. We've got uh, lots of different proteins that are all nitrogenous based. Mm. If the plant is not able to process them in a way that is optimal for life in other words a certain order of events
1: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, that occurs that allows them to produce complete proteins from nitrogen from the air Mm -hmm. for example among other things then uh there are going to be sinks and these nitrogenous sinks will build up okay and once these nitrogenous sinks because they're not being utilized so you want everything to proceed in a particular fashion. And if they're not, there's gonna be a sink and there's gonna be a buildup. Mm-hmm. Once that buildup occurs, whatever it may be, this will now stress the plant. The particular stress will make itself known. This will bring in a particular type of insect and it will then start feeding on the plant, okay. which is what the aphids are doing and, right. and all the other uh, plants are doing the thrips as well. Right. Okay. So that is what is going on is there is an imbalance mm. occurring at the plants mm-hmm. are are probably creating these uh, nitrogen sinks
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, this is bringing in uh, the aphids Uh, the thrips will be in a similar uh, way there are many other insects that will be in the same type of boat as to what i'm generally describing right now
1: yeah
2: and that will be part of the problem so this is something that you will have to continue to work out Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's difficult to say without spending a lot of time taking a look at what you've got and totally understanding understand. everything that you've done so that I don't say something uh, <laughs> that would make, make, make things worse for you.
0: No, I think the other thing that uh, it's even, I think you could correct me if I'm wrong. I, the other thing that happens a lot with these crops is for those of us growing undercover in greenhouses and high tunnels is weather fluctuation, which there's a lot of lately. Like if we were just at 18 degrees last night, we're going to 75 degrees tomorrow. That swing in temperature for these crops that really want to just be right around 45 degrees at all times is just so hard on them. So I do think there's just a... I don't. I mean, I guess I could. Yeah. I, in an optimal world, they would be super healthy, um, with the soil being super healthy. But I start to think sometimes that there's just no way to help them out when there's such drastic temperature changes. So
2: yeah, there's a certain amount of truth, Jenny. What you're talking about is is the classic act of God. Yeah. You know, there's some right. things that you cannot. connect. You no, know, when a hurricane comes through Florida, yeah. you know, we we don't sit there. I don't.
1: Sit, and think I don't about tell, how not tell
2: Exactly. I'm not yeah. sitting there. You know, when a farmer calls me up, we got a hurricane coming in. Right. Can you Help up my plants?
0: Like, it's not I'm the time, sorry. buddy. Not the there, time. This,
2: this is this is not going to work for you. This is not going to work. Right.
0: Oh, yeah. There just is. There just is. It's unfortunate. I feel like there's just more and more climate, you know, climactic conditions that are making it harder and harder to do what we do. So, but I suppose if we if we focus on soil biology and and get that as as healthy and and um, uh, populated as possible, then at least it gives our plants the best shot that we can. So,
2: correct. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. But sometimes uh, in the process, you understand, as I think everybody does, you're going to lose some of your crop. That happens sometimes. Some years mm-hmm. are fantastic and you think you're all that <laughs> and you're, you know, <laughs> flaunting it. and You're talking to everybody <laughs> about, you know, how many flowers, how much money you made. Uh, yeah. And then the next year it, it bottoms out and yep. you're wondering what just happened. Mm-hmm. So celebrate the, the years of plenty and uh, weather uh, the uh, the ones that uh, that don't work out as well as you would hope yeah, because that, yeah. al- that always
0: happens. Yeah, we just have to diversify, diversify, and uh, be prepared to ride the roller coaster. Any flower farmer or farmer of any kind uh, knows how to do that. So yes, <laughs> it's part of the fun. Um, yes, <laughs> is there? A- I was talking about oh, hardening
2: yeah. the plants. Remember, I was talking yeah, about yeah. hardening the plants. So using like calcium, and silica, and iron, mm-hmm. and you know you can put as much out there, and you can even hit optimal levels, mm-hmm. and then a hailstorm right. comes in <laughs> and that's, that's it. I mean, yeah. nothing is going to survive hail. I don't yeah. care how hard it is. Right. Exactly. And I, I have seen total decimation after hail storms. Uh, but, yeah. uh, this, this yeah. is sometimes that, that happens that you can do your best, but when it, when it happens, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I really am. I mean, I've had to deal with it myself. Uh, I do, uh, try to raise plants for my family and sometimes, um, things don't work out the way that I had hoped they would
0: yeah and, uh, well it's mother nature she's always got she's got the end game in mind and uh, we're just yeah. along for the ride um, I just
2: had a fig tree uh, the fig tree was throwing out a huge amount of leaves most I've ever seen yeah from the tree and it was just looking fantastic I was huh. like yay oh, I'm great I'm yeah. wonderful and then uh, the temperature went down to 27 <gasps> degrees
1: Ooh.
2: just Um. it happened just I think about two weeks ago yeah uh, I'd have to look like, it went down to 27 it probably went colder because I'm not uh, in the country. Yeah, I'm not actually in Gainesville, but I'm out there and every single leaf on that fig tree succumbed
0: oh, now no. it's sending
2: it's sending out new new leaves right now. But uh, that you just they just, it was caught off guard. Yeah, I didn't expect mm-hmm. uh, a cold temperature like that to be happening in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it came it happened. And I'm in Florida.
0: Yeah, that's and we're cold. still getting
2: these cold temperatures. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow, wow, yeah. I I think this is just the the path ahead of us as growers, as we just have to be prepared for the crazy swings. And um, I'm on a mission to try to find any and all tools that we can use to make it a little bit more manageable. Uh, and I think this being able to read bricks is going to be super helpful for growers to be able to understand what's going on with their plants, to have a a benchmark to try to reach. You know, reach that 12, so that there'll be a lot less pest pressure and understand Uh that if something's dipping down, then look and see which kind of pest it is first and that helps you understand where you're at and then try to move up the ladder with time. Um, I love this idea that basalt rock or another paramagnetic rock is helpful. When I first asked to interview you, I didn't even put those two things together, but I'm always fascinated by uh, rock dust and all the different anecdotal information that's out there about it and I feel a little bit better when somebody who is so knowledgeable... <laughs> about bioelectromagnetics says yes it does work that makes me be like oh maybe it's not all witchy you know <laughs> stuff <laughs> that, that we uh, weirdo uh, organic farmers talk about so that makes me feel better to keep adding more of that <laughs> so um are there any other final like you know points that you any advice or thoughts that you would give a, a smaller regenerative grower on how to tackle some of these things in their fields
2: Uh, I wouldn't want to uh, dare do something like that right now because (laughs) everybody who probably wants further information wants specific information. And that specific information is something which is, hard to do on mm-hmm. uh, on a podcast mm-hmm. uh, such as this mm-hmm. uh, because you do want to be as specific to help someone out. And obviously mm-hmm. someone who has an aphid problem uh, is going to be treated differently than someone who's just dealing with a Japanese beetle mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. those are two different beasts. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, the recommendations is to find out what is being done, make corrections immediately, mm-hmm. stop using things which are hurting the plant, start yes. using plants which are going to help the plant, can- Continue to measure, 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 measure. I mean, being a scientist, I I love to measure things Mm -hmm. because it's hard to just, you know, stand back and look at a plan and go, yeah, I think it's healthier (laughs) than yesterday. Whereas when you measure it, you're going to get a much more accurate reading as to what's going on. So that's why measuring is important. And so in that particular case, if I had to tell someone who was starting out, and it sounds like you've already done so, go through a season of mm-hmm. using bricks. Mm-hmm. Because if you just go through and you test it once or twice during a season, and you think that you know what you know uh, your plants are doing, uh, this is not something that's easy to work with. So mm-hmm. we're going through a season, we're testing the bricks. We like to see how it increases, why it may go down. And sometimes it's very easy to tell why it went down. And there are these, uh, as I mentioned, these acts of God that are mm-hmm. out there that do bring bricks down and we've measured it and we understand why the bricks came down and we don't blame the plant. Mm. We just say, look, this just happened right now, mm-hmm. uh, but the plant will recover mm. and uh, just give it uh, another couple of days and it'll be back up. And so by doing it on a regular basis, you can see and read what the plant is thinking. you're kind of going along and say, okay, I see Hmm. how the plan is doing well. We then went ahead and made this application at this point and wow, it shot up from six to nine bricks Hmm. and then it stayed at nine bricks for the rest of the season. You know, we weren't able to increase it at that point and that's good information to know because everybody is making their own, everybody has their own concoction Mm -hmm. of uh, their little, um, their little, uh, Got a little flower mixture (laughs) that they don't tell anybody else out, but they know what they're doing. Right. And so by putting that stuff out, you can kind of measure (laughs) your own flower concoction and see what the benefit is and as to whether or not it works during the early part of the season, maybe during Mm -hmm. the vegetative phase or during the reproductive phase, Mm -hmm. which is obviously more important for the flower industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once you've got that basic information and it's much easier for someone like me in order to sit down with you and discuss, okay, this is where we've been for the last year or two. Uh, I could see that you've been steadily, maybe steadily low. Uh, and this is what we're gonna need to do in order to get things up. Or if I see that things have been increasing three years in a row, you know, you're averaging fives and sixes. Now you're averaging six and sevens the next year, the next year, you're averaging sevens and eights. And so you can see that they're moving in the right direction. Uh, I'll ask them questions about the insects that are attacking, I'm always asking about that. Anytime I call a farmer up, I like to know what insects are attacking it, what insects used to attack it, what insects are attacking it now, uh, so I can get a better feel hmm. of what's happening in order to make a recommendation if yeah. that's what I'm being asked to do.
0: Okay, yeah, that's good advice. How often do you think we should be testing bricks to set that baseline if we were approaching um, you or advancing eco ag or whatever? You know, if we're if we're going to get some advice, how often should we be testing to make sure we have good info?
2: Oh, um, minimum every two weeks, uh, preferably, preferably every week.
0: Okay, great.
2: Yeah. So if there's a time that, you know, like if you just know for whatever reason, you know, Mondays and Fridays are really busy, but you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are a little bit better. So I'm always going to test at that time of the week. Uh, and therefore it becomes a part of your routine. Once Mm -hmm. it becomes a part of your routine. You will, you will remember to do so. Right. And as long as you're writing it down and not just memorizing it. Yeah. So someone like me has a chart to look at. Now we've got a season to go through. We can see uh, what was happening with the leaves and then talk to you about what the problems are and then make recommendations in order to uh, increase it. So yes, it needs to be tested. I would prefer it be done once a week. Once week. Uh, there are some people who have way too much time on their hands <laughs> and are measuring it <laughs> three times a day. Right. Uh, but. If you want, if you want to do that, you know, morning, <laughs> afternoon, and then at no, night.
0: I did it. I did it three times a day for a little while just to like understand. Yeah, just the to start out. Slow. Yeah, <laughs> yes. just you know. But I, I don't do that all the time now. The good God, though, it's it's it takes a lot of time to, not a lot of time to measure bricks, but it it does take a little bit of time when you're so busy with everything else. But um, no, that's great. And for me, when I do bricks, I'm writing it down in my notebook that has the you know the bricks reading, and then I also make a note. Next to that reading, like if I had applied anything that week to that crop uh, so that good. I know, you know, oh, hey, it changed because, you know, in the next re- next reading, maybe I can tell what happened. So it's all about record yes. keeping. <laughs>
2: Fantastic! It sounds like you're on the ball, Jenny. I'm trying.
0: I'm trying. I'm no. I'm no scientist, though, Tom. So, <laughs> so all right. Well, this we'll, is, we'll work on that. Well, yeah, I'm trying. I'm get. I get a little nerdier every day. But you know, I first and foremost, have to farm. But it's. Uh, it's been fun. I've been farming for many, many years, and this part of my life has been more rewarding than ever before. As I, I try to better understand what natural farming is and what tools yeah what tools there are out there to do it so i love that you let me talk to you and ask you lots of questions and you're so good at answering them so thank you for that i know the listeners are going to be delighted to better understand bricks because it's something that hasn't really been talked about in the flower world uh, but seems like an amazing tool and i'm really grateful for all the knowledge you shared so thank you tom
2: Happy to help out, Jenny. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you so much for your questions. Very good questions. Uh, All the best to you and to all of the listeners as you continue to supply flowers for my wife. Oh, yeah, there you go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lot of really good growers in Florida, so (laughs) I'll hook you up. (laughs) There's there's some good ones down there. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. (laughs) Well, That wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil. I heard you originally talk to John Kempf on his podcast uh, back in 2018, and I was really intrigued by your conversation, particularly because I had tried to, and I shouldn't say tried to, I did read um, Dr. Phil Callahan's book, Tuning Into Nature, a few years ago, and it just kind of went over my head. (laughs) To be honest, it wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that level of scientific knowledge. And I found it hard to think about how that would apply and affect my own farm crops. And then I heard your um, conversation with John on his podcast, and so many things just started clicking into place. And I really appreciated uh, your way of talking about how insects move around our world and, and how they interact with agricultural crops. So what Wanted to get you on here so I could pick your brain <laughs> about all of those things. All right. Things. So pick it's my, away. Yeah. It's my understanding that you actually worked with Phil Callahan uh, in the past. Um, and so th- just let's start with, by talking about what bioelectromagnetics is and what you guys have been doing. Like, what kind of work are you doing?
2: Okay. Bioelectromagnetics is the study of how electromagnetic fields affect life. Uh, and so this life uh, does not uh it it does not exclude all other animals besides the insects that i predominantly work on it can also include just as easily uh plant life uh, microbial life anything of that sort because all of the interactions to electromagnetic fields are in effect very very similar to one another because of the biological materials that are out there whether it be the skin whether it be the insect cuticle or anything of that sort they have very similar functions the cell membrane Uh, is very similar, Uh, it's it's, uh, on uh, many of the insects. And so therefore these interactions don't differ that much. So because my background is entomology, that is the focus. Uh, I have talked and and still do talk a lot about other factors of bioelectromagnetics as it relates to other animals besides insects, but as the case may be, uh, because I've got the three degrees in entomology, everyone pretty much asked me about insects and nothing else. So because of that, uh, that becomes my uh, de facto specialization, and so that's what we—that's what we do. I did work with Dr. Callahan. Uh, he took me through my PhD at the University of Florida. And after, uh, he was actually retired uh, before he did that, so we had to bring him back in. And then immediately after I got my degree, he retired again, which should be you know a strong sign about uh, how much he, he enjoyed uh, taking me through the PhD and realized I cannot do this again and will not do this again. So he retired for the second time. <clears throat> and then I started uh, this laboratory, uh, which has been ongoing for a quarter of a century now, since 1997 and uh, during that time we we take a look at anything dealing with bioelectromagnetics we did spend a lot of time looking at the india meal moth which is the number one stored product pest in the world and trying to analyze how they smell especially their 14 carbon acetate pheromone the details surrounding it and how we could actually design a trap which would make it more attractive so that was kind of how we began at the beginning Uh, a number of patents ensued from that research but in the back of my mind, during that entire time we were working on it, we still I still had questions about how insects smelled. Hmm. And having read a considerable amount of the uh, literature, whether it be books or some of the scientific papers that were out there, I realized that there was no surety uh, in this. And there was a lot of confusion uh, where there should not have been at this time because uh, the process that had been put forward seemed rather straightforward and easy to determine, and yet Uh, it was not easy to determine how insects were smelling. So in the back of my mind, never in the forefront, I had always uh, entertained the possibility that insects were smelling uh, electromagnetically. Essentially, they were smelling the electromagnetic fields emanating from an odorant rather than through a lock and key mechanism. The proof for it uh, was not there. We had plenty of proof that the current system was not working. And then, when I was able to start putting some pieces together, we were able to hit the jackpot. And so that was back in 2016, when uh, I will say, without any type of uh, uh, perfect completeness, we discovered how insects smelled in 2016. And it was that process, which is involved in bioelectromagnetics and how the insects were smelling uh, the pheromones, plant odorants, uh, carbon dioxide, any type of odorant that an insect would be able to pick up, how they were doing it and uh, in a a fair amount of detail. And then after determining that, were we able to predict how the insects can smell certain uh, odorants? And in the past, um, since 2016, we have been able to show Uh, and predict uh, what the insects are smelling and we've had a considerable success in determining that uh, to the point where we could even determine what an insect will smell without even testing the organism itself by simply analyzing all of the chemoreceptors uh, we are able to determine uh, what they're smelling and how well they're smelling it. So for example, we can differentiate between uh, carbon dioxide being smelled by a Culex mosquito versus an Anopheles mosquito versus an Aedes mosquito uh, and the differences in how they perceive carbon dioxide. So wow. uh, that that has been an absolute uh, uh, joy ride. This has been a roller coaster of a ride too and that's been the more recent aspect of uh, the uh, the bioelectromagnetic stuff that uh, we have done. So um, as things turn out, things do change a little bit. I mean, we had that, that uh, uh the all, all that covet chaos that was going mm-hmm. on uh, things did change a little bit so i'm now moving to um aea mm-hmm. uh advancing eco, eco, eco agriculture awesome. and have been working with them uh for uh, just over a year right now and uh, we're in the process of uh, setting up a second year and so i'm spending some time um as their scientific advisor uh giving them uh any type of advice i can usually they just said nope Nope, nope, not helping, not (laughs) helping. And I realized, like, what am I doing here? Uh, But I have had a chance to analyze a number of things, and I do some crop consulting and things of that sort. So uh, I try not to get too weird, because obviously if you talk too much about (laughs) bioelectromagnetics, you you lose your listener in a hurry. Uh, But these are some of the things that I have worked on and am working on uh, right now.
0: That I I have so many questions based off of that, and for the record, our audience here is always into the nerdy details, but we're not scientists, so <laughs> sometimes I have to like ask the questions to like figure out what you just said. So I want to talk about a couple things. So you said odorants uh, versus like a lock and key system is the way yeah. insects smell. What does that mean for those of us that don't understand smell scientifically at all? What does yeah. what is that?
2: Yeah, generally speaking, smell has been attributed to a lock and key mechanism where an odorant molecule will actually bind uh, in some fashion with a receptor. Hmm. Uh, this is, it's been well established. Uh, it's its well known among neurotransmitters. It's well known among a lot of different physiological systems. Uh, and, and I even think uh, there's very convincing evidence that it's still applicable to human hmm. uh, smell, as a matter of fact, is um, uh, just to mention that. However, with insects, uh, we don't have evidence, no direct evidence uh, that the odorants are actually making contact with the receptors in question. That's where I differ uh, from the conventional wisdom uh, that is out there right now. And so if there is no physical contact between the odorants and the actual receptors, which we know are detecting the odorants, then at this point, you, you have to come up with an idea as to how they can be detecting them from a distance. Mm-hmm. And if they're de- being detected from a distance, one of the first things that comes up with is that this, this could be electromagnetic base because they're obviously operating over uh, space uh, mm-hmm. and time. And therefore, in order for that message to be transmitted, since there is no physical contact occurring, Uh, there must be another mechanism out there. And it's the electromagnetic idea of how the odorants are absorbing energy, emitting energy, whether or not these frequencies by the odorants can be picked up by insects. And so it's a matter of going through and taking a look at various spectra of a particular odorant. So for example, carbon dioxide, it's Mm -hmm. a very well-known odorant that many insects can detect. There are multiple frequencies associated with carbon dioxide. And I'm able to go to the chemoreceptors and determine how much they overlap with the chemoreceptors for insects that we know bona fide can detect carbon dioxide. And it's a matter of going through and determining, can they detect it? with the ordinate receptors? Can they do it with the gustatory receptors? Can they do it with the ionotropic receptors? Can they do it with the SNMPs? Can they do it with the pheromone binding proteins? So on and so forth, there are all these molecules that have been implicated in insect smell. And my job in part is to take a look to see how they are able to accomplish something like this. And from what I have learned, especially since 2016, it's a beautiful system, very elegant, Uh, predicted, predictable, and uh, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, to be working in this field. So it's a matter of lining up Hmm. uh, frequencies on one side versus frequencies on the other. And if they do line up, we now have the science of resonance. And I mentioned resonance because you said there are a bunch of uh, nerdy people out there. And so (laughs) I want to be able to satisfy that nerdiness in people. So, So if we can show resonance, then we have Uh, some uh, evidence right now to show how the insects are detecting these various frequencies not just carbon dioxide but really any any odorant that is out there
0: so basically i could have this completely wrong and forgive me if i do but basically (sighs) um in my brain i'm picturing like human smelling because there's like a molecule of um of uh, stinky cheese hits their nose and that molecule goes into a receptor and bam yeah I've smelled stinky cheese but an insect that's flying up way up in the atmosphere isn't going to smell um, some stinky cheese down on the ground let's say <laughs> and instead there's some sort of uh, energy not not just like a a, um, a molecule of smell that's going on that's getting the the insect to notice it is that right? Am I kind of getting, getting it right?
2: <laughs> to, a, to a certain extent, yes, yes. The molecules are all, as long as it's above zero degrees Kelvin, they're all vibrating, okay. uh, they're all absorbing energy, and they're all releasing energy. And we, uh, as, as chemists, we understand how we can take a look at many of these frequencies uh, in various odorants. And in uh, taking a look at these frequencies, we can identify uh, the various parts of a chemical molecule. So we can determine whether or not it has, let's say, an acetate group or an aldehyde, a ketone, uh, carboxylic acid, and all of these uh, groups have certain frequencies that are associated with them, not just one, but usually several. And it's these groups with these associated frequencies, which we were able to match up uh, very predictably uh, with, um, uh, with the insect in question. So with the Indian meal moth, we had to mat- match up an acetate. So they have a 14-carbon acetate, so that involved different frequencies in CO2, and we were able to find uh, those frequencies evident uh, Hmm. very uh, prominently in the the Indian meal moth, and that's essentially how
1: uh, we work without getting too nerdy.